Let us pray. Father, we come once again to You for Your Word, that You might fill us up and feed us and bless us and pour Your Spirit into us, Lord. Well, we trust that You have something living to say to us tonight, though from a very ancient story. We pray, God, that You would settle that story in our hearts and learn that we might learn from you. Uh, Lord, we come in with uh, many um, cares in this world, and we pray, God, that you would uh, receive them and carry those burdens for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Judges, and this is a fun one. I, I, I tell you, this is... Um, I, we, we, you hear about Gideon, right? But you don't... I don't know how many, I don't know that I've ever been in a study on Gideon. I've read Gideon several times. And people talk about putting out a fleece and kind of use that sort of evangelical code uh, words and stuff uh, in some circles, maybe not in all circles. But, uh, but I, I, don't, um, I don't ever really remember studying uh, Gideon for, for much. And so this has been, been pretty fun. Um, the, uh, Gideon, I, I do not know why the Gideons are called the Gideons. I, sh- I should have thought to look that up. Does anybody, did anybody look up, does anybody know the story of, you do, you're, you're nodding your head. You know, why are the Gideons called the Gideons? Because they, um, all I can think of, there must be a, is there a verse in Judges that says they stood every man in their own place? There is a book that's the history of the Gideons. My father was a Gideon. Uh-huh. Everyone in his own. I don't, you know, that verse doesn't stick out to me, that phrase from looking at it. Uh, everyone in his own place. So I don't know why the Gideons are called the Gideons, uh, but because there's nothing in here about Gideon reading his Bible. So, um, but. Uh, Nothing particularly like that. No, he um, he he was an interesting character, which is what's so interesting. You would not—he's not who you would pick out to name your Bible society after. And so, uh, you know, you would call them the Davids or something like that. You know, you wouldn't the Barnabases. Uh, but the Gideons—I mean, we know that as sort of our vernacular, particularly. I don't, are the Gideons all over? Or I mean, they're not just the South, right? I mean, they're they're kind of they're. International, Our right? Was the international I did not know that we were in the presence of greatness. Um, but, uh, well, the child of greatness. I, I, well, I think we all are children of greatness uh, here uh, by faith, anyway. So, um, well, let's, we ended up last week, we looked last, two weeks ago at uh, Deborah and uh, Barak, and the, just the uh, very, very interesting uh, story of, of, of how the, the system of judges came into place, and uh, just an interesting story. Deborah really uh, w- was very faithful as a judge, uh, but she was, um, you know, what we saw is that cycle of, of where the, the, the Israelites cry out to the Lord uh, for help. He comes and rescues them, uh, and then they, uh, he sends a judge, and he rescues them, and then, and then, they, uh, then the judge dies, and everybody 
uh, goes back, right? So, yes, sir, Ron. Just look up uh, the Gideons. Oh, okay. So tell us why they why are the Gideons called the Gideons? This is the story from the organization itself. Gideon was a man who was willing to do exactly what God wanted him to do, regardless of his own judgment as to the plans or results. Humility, faith, and obedience were his great elements of character. This is the standard that the Gideons International was trying to establish in all its members. All right. Well, I don't know if you could hear that. So, what uh, Gideon was a man who, uh, with great humility, did whatever the Lord called him to do. Uh, we're going to see that that did not come easy for Gideon, uh, but it was nevertheless uh, Gideon's. Um, I was. That's very interesting. Thank you for for sharing that. That's one thing about our society now with these phones. You really don't have to wait to find anything out. You know, you don't have to, well, I'll go back and look up the Encyclopedia Britannica when I get home. You don't have to do that anymore. Um, all right, so uh, chapter 5, when we looked at uh, Deborah last week, chapter 5 ends with, and the land had rest for 40 years. This would have been the Israel that Gideon grew up in. Uh, Deborah was the judge, and the land had rest for 40 years. From They were uh, not oppressed. They, they were relatively uh, in relative peace. Uh, for 40 years. And of course, 40 years probably wasn't 40 years, but 40 years is often a time of, of um, you know, like the 40 years in the desert. Probably it's just, it just means a, a sort of a long time, but not a, not 100 years. You know, just it, a long, long time. Had let rest for a long time. That's, again, would have been the Israel that, that, um, that, that Gideon grew up in. And yet, verse 1 in chapter 6, uh, which I don't think you have in your. Uh, handout says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, that's just that is that we hear that over and over uh, again. And so the Lord, what happens is the Lord gives them into the hand of Midian. Now Midian has been in and out of the story. You can remember that that Moses uh, actually uh, came into contact with Jethro, who was a priest in Midian, and uh, and worked for him, became his son-in-law, married his daughter. And, uh, and yet, interestingly, I read today, uh, I'm in numbers in my own reading, and, and uh, somebody takes a Midianite wife, and they kill him. Phineas kills, kills him. And, uh, and, so, and I was like, Moses had a Midianite wife. <laughs> it's hard to understand. But, um, but anyways, the Midianites have been in and out of the story. And, uh, but in here, they come into Israel and they oppress the Israelites like they have not yet been oppressed since they came into the promised land. They, um, they are, uh, it is economic ex- exploitation. They are taking all their crops. They're taking all their livestock. They're driving the people up into the caves uh, in the mountains. And it says that the Midianites could not be counted, nor could their camels. So essentially they are just... Uh, they are far outnumbering, far outweighing uh, the Israelites. So, uh, so they, the Israelites, it says this was going on for seven years. Uh, they gave uh, the hand of Midian overpowered Israel uh, because, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves uh, dens in the mountains and the caves. So um, this was, and finally they cry out uh, to the Lord. Interestingly, uh, it, was, um, it was because of their situation that they cried out for the Lord. And their situation came about because they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. One commentator uh, makes a very important distinction 
between regret and repentance. And this, I want to think more about this uh, because what this is this was the distinction he drew. Regret is circumstantial. I'm sorry for my actions because of the consequences. The consequences are painful for me, so I regret what I have done. In other words, had the consequences not been painful, I would not have noticed that I had wandered from the, from the Lord. Repentance, on the other hand, is moral. I'm sorry for my sin because it is sin. Like, I'm sorry for my sin because of how it affects or how it disappoints and dishonors God apart from the consequences. I'm sorry for my sin because it's sin. Rather, is uh, I'm sorry for my sin because it has the consequences that have um, have hurt my life uh, and, or my comfort. Um, Israel was in regret, not repentance. They were being oppressed by the Midianites, and so they cried out uh, for mercy. They wanted out of their sorry situation. And, and I think, personally, this is a real, uh, that distinction, this, Tim Keller, I've um, mentioned him before, uh, that he makes is, um, is a real challenge. I mean, like, I don't know if you remember like, raising your kids, or uh, I can certainly think my kids, uh, I'm sorry often means I'm sorry I got caught, right? Yeah, you know, I am, um, and, and for us, this remains as adults, I mean, to me, it's just a piercing insight that I really want to spend a little more time uh, drilling down on in my own life. And yet, it really is uh, a mercy, isn't it? Because um, even though, uh, what this says is that even though they, they hated their situation, and yet it was the way by which they knew to call out to the Lord. Otherwise, if they had sinned and they just wandered off and nothing happened and they lived in a nice middle-class neighborhood, they wouldn't have... Uh, they would never have thought to cry out for the Lord. It's their suffering that makes them, that makes them do that. What's interesting, though, is that normally in this pattern we've, we've seen, I didn't bring the board in here, but the pattern is they, they cry out for the Lord and the Lord sends a judge. Well, this at first he doesn't send a judge, he sends a prophet. Now, this is, a, um, this is, this is an unnamed prophet. It does, we don't have, so what's important is not the prophet himself, it's just the, the word. And this is what the prophet says. Uh, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So the Lord uh, sends this unnamed prophet. Uh, he doesn't send a judge. He doesn't send a deliverer. He sends a sermon, right? And he, they, he wants to convict them of their sin uh, and can convict them that their sin goes deeper than their temporal consequences. Uh, I think that's an important point. Uh, they have uh, worked against the Lord who has worked on their behalf. God says, I was for you and you have not obeyed my voice. We saw this was the same thing that the angel of the Lord said to Israel as a, as a corporate uh, entity. Uh, you have not obeyed my voice back in chapter 2. We looked at that uh, a couple of weeks ago. 
He is explaining to them the reason for the consequences. You've not obeyed my voice. I'm the one that brought you out of Israel. All you have to do is follow me and things will go well for you. And yet, uh, this, this judgment is a mercy because it is intended to bring them back to himself. Because remember, if it weren't for the consequences, they never would have noticed that they wandered away from God. So, there is no indication uh, that they repent at all. I mean, it just doesn't say uh, one thing, and yet that he commissions, uh, God commissions Gideon. So, just an interesting point for us to note that even here, this is going to point us right to the cross, that God is not waiting for the people to repent before he sends a deliverer. Which is the same for us. He's not waiting for you. I mean, he sent Jesus. He's not waiting for you to repent. Uh, what you learn in your life is that though you certainly made a decision for Christ, that you look back on that years later and realize, I could never have made that decision had he not made a decision for me. That God, has, uh, God was already working in my life and made it possible within my heart uh, to invite him in. So God was already uh, there. He's not waiting on us. And so he commissions Gideon. Before we do that, anything you want to ask a question? Yeah, Ed. Uh, relationship between the Midianites and Amorites. So they're uh, basically all uh, not Hebrews. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have, I don't know exactly the ethnic relationship, but they, it's simply, you know, you got the Moabites, the Midianites, the Amorites, the Hizzites, the Jebusites. They were all sort of in Canaanites. I mean, they were all in the land. And those Amorites were some of the people that they didn't destroy all of when they were... That's right. Yeah, all, really all of them. I mean, they were all ones that had not... This is taking place where we're going to see this battle. It's right be, uh, below south... Southwest of um, the Sea of Galilee. And so it's in the Promised Land. You know, they're still there. Why are the many nights there? Because they didn't drive them out. Amorites, Canaanites, all, all the same. Didn't, didn't the daughters of Lot give birth to two of these groups? I forget which two they The daughters of Lot, uh, back in Sodom and Gomorrah. I, man, I, yeah, um, that's your homework for next week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I'm pro- you're probably right. I, I, I just. Yeah, I don't know. I know. Um, well, it doesn't matter. All right. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, which is a tree, terebinth at uh, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has this all happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not, do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. 
And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you uh, who speak to me. Uh, so it is, there's just all sorts of indicators here that Gideon's uh, resume for military leadership is not impressive, right? Not impressive. He's hiding in the wine press. That's where we find him. He's, uh, he's beating out the wheat. He's hiding in the wine press. He doesn't want many. Now, understandably, because the, the Midianites have taken all of their, their crops and their produce and everything. But he's hiding out. Um, he assumes that the Lord has forsaken Israel. This is, I mean, you, you can understand this. When you're in a, in a dark spot, you don't have the perspective to say, you know, but I'm going to rejoice in my sufferings. You know, like, just, even though we're commanded to do that in Scripture. And, and, and of course, Gideon was in this sort of, Baal-worshipping, syncretistic uh, culture, and he just assumed that the lack of the Lord's, uh, the lack of the good circumstances meant the lack of the Lord's favor. Not the mercy of God calling them back to himself. But he assumes the Lord has forsaken Israel. He's, he is doubtful to the core. We see that all throughout his story. Uh, in fact, he says he is the least man in the least house of the weakest tribe. So remember, Manasseh was one of the sons of uh, Joseph, uh, and Joseph would have been, Joseph, so Manasseh was just a half-tribe, right? And so, of the half-tribe of Manasseh, uh, Joash, the um, Habiezrite, well, I don't know all these guys, but uh, Gideon saying, we're nobodies, and I'm no, a nobody of the nobodies, right? He's like the D student has, who's now been asked to, to uh, get Harvard back on its feet. You know, it's... Yeah, you, I'm not the guy that you want uh, to do this. You have the wrong person. Interesting, isn't it, too, that, that what we have, let's take a look for just a second. The angel of the Lord came. We see, again, we saw the angel of the Lord in, in the book of Joshua. And we saw him come up last week and talk to uh, Israel. And now we have him again. And it says, uh, first he's called the angel of the Lord. But then it says, the Lord uh, appeared to him and said, no, that's, this is the angel of the Lord. Find it for me. Oh, 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this mighty verse. So the angel of the Lord, I, I don't think it's a stretch, uh, and many commentators said this is the second person of the Trinity. And this, is, this is Jesus. It doesn't mean he's the son of Joseph and Mary. It just means this is the second person of the Trinity. This is um, how, how he is representing the voice of the Lord, uh, who, but, and yet he is the Lord uh, who is there before Gideon. This is why Gideon is going to be afraid for his life. Uh, we'll see. And then, and then he says, no, you don't have to fear. He's afraid for his life because he's in the presence of God. Even here, in this crazy book of Judges, we see that God is multi-personal. Mm-hmm. So, uh, early, early hint of the Trinity. Right there. But I, I think that, um, that what we see is that this, it is sincere humility. And self-doubt. He, I mean, Gideon is not feigning like, "Oh, I know I can do this, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put it off, you know, for the for the cameras or whatever." That, that I'm not. I mean, he really believes that he is he is the least of the least, and, and and that and what this is saying is this is positioning him perfectly to be used by the Lord. Now, why is that? What would you say? Why, why is that? Because God will get the glory. That's right. Why else? That's right. Nothing to boast about. Nothing to boast about. Good. So, 
God said, an angel of the Lord says, but I will be with you. He doesn't say, oh, isn't that so good? I love it. He doesn't say, oh, Gideon, if only you knew how to tap into your true potential. Right? He said, Gideon, look at the muscles on your arms, man. Come on. You have just, you know, he doesn't say any of that. He says, but I will be with you. And actually, we see this all through Scripture. Uh, Exodus, uh, chap- Exodus chapter 3, Moses is at the burning bush. And he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God says, but I will be with you. And Jeremiah uh, says, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I am only a youth. And God says, don't say you're only a youth. I will be with you. And then in Acts chapter 18, Paul uh, is, uh, has had this, he's in Corinth, he's had this big blow up with the Jews. They, uh, they were reviling him because, of course, he's saying that the Jews killed Jesus and, uh, and he's the fulfillment and, um, of their law. And, and so he has this big blow up and he says, from now on, I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. And God speaks to him in a vision that night and says, do not be afraid to go on speaking for I will be with you. Right? And then, of course, Jesus, at the end of his, uh, after his resurrection, at the end of, chapter, um, end of Matthew, chapter 28, the Great Commission, says, Behold, I will be with you, always, even to the end of the age. We see this over and over again, that God is never saying, Listen, you can do it. I believe in you. He said, <laughs> God says, I believe in myself. That is what God is saying. And I will be with you. Right? So all you have to do is, you have to believe in myself, too. Um, that's the answer uh, to our fear about obeying the Lord. Behold, I am with you. Uh, the answer to, you know, what, are, well, what will they think of me? Uh, what's going to happen to me and my family if I step out in faith and do this? Where is this journey of faith going to take me? How will I possibly be up to the task? The answer to the question is, is never, you got it. Uh, you have what it takes. The answer is always and only I uh, am with you. Which is, I will tell you, um, when, when uh, I was discerning uh, my call to the priesthood, uh, Frank Limehouse, who I feel like I probably, you know, I, you know, like you, could, you, could ha- you could just have him over to dinner because I talk, him over, talk about him so much. But he just, he, he told, I remember him telling me that when he was called to be the dean of the advent yeah, uh, of the cathedral, he said, I thought... How can I do this, Lord? I'm 60 years old. I don't need to start this new chapter and moving my wife to this new place out of this place that we love. I want to play golf. And he said, and he said, the Lord, it's just like the Lord took him to, to Jeremiah and said, Don't say you're an old man. Say, you know, I'm with you. And um, and and he said, this, and you remember when he when he preached here, if you remember in the institution, he said, he said, it's gonna be hard, it's gonna be scary, but I am but I am with you. God, God says, I am with you. Um I think this is why we have all these records uh, preserved for us of these battles uh, where, that are being waged, uh, hardly ever fought, but all these battles, these confrontations with the Midianites and, or the Moabites or whoever it is, uh, and it's always the Lord uh, who does the fight. What a great encouragement. It's always the Lord who does the fight. I mean, you hardly ever see the Israelites pick a sword up. And you won't see it today. It's always the Lord who does the fighting. That can be just such a great encouragement. You're staring down the barrel of something that is just way beyond your ability. 
you, you've got something going on with your adult child. You've got a business decision that you don't know what in the world to do with. Uh, you've got uh, all the, <laughs> you had saved up for retirement, and all of a sudden it's just not there anymore. Whatever it is, the battle belongs to the Lord. And I need for y'all to remind me that when I, uh, too, but I need, I'm here to remind you uh, from this it's always the Lord uh, who does the fighting. Maybe we should sing on Sunday. Well, it's Advent 1, and we're going to sing Lowy Comes in Clouds this Sunday. That's just, that's just what we're going to do. But the battle belongs to the Lord. Um, you know, interesting. another thing to think about this passage is that the angel of the Lord says, calls him what? Did you catch that? This kid who's beating out the wheat and hiding in the wine press, what, is he, what does the angel of the Lord say to him? Mighty man of valor. Wouldn't it be cool if the Lord came up to you? Oh, mighty woman of valor. Mighty man of valor. Gideon does not see himself that way, but he is that. He is the mighty man of valor because the Lord said it. Because the Lord said that's who he is. God is the ultimate judge of character. And if he declares it to be so, then it is so. Our culture does not say that. Our culture culture has this narrative that says, look inside your heart. You are the best determinant, one to determine uh, who you are and what you're made of. Gideon looked at himself, and he didn't see a mighty man of valor. He saw someone needed to hide inside the wine press and beat out the wheat. But this presents a very different narrative than our culture. This says, God says who you are. God says who you are. And this is inevitably going to point us ahead uh, to the grace of God. Um, Gideon certainly did not see him look in the mirror and see a mighty man of valor any more than you and I look in, uh, look in the mirror and see saint. Right? God has said it because of what Christ has done. He has declared you to be saved by grace. That you are a, you, He didn't earn that title of mighty man of valor. You have not earned the title of child of God or saint, but it has been declared unto you. God said it. It is so. Can you go there with me? Alright. So, Gideon asks for a sign. So what... um, The fleece is is the more famous one, but actually between these verses, what happens is he he says, hold on, I'm going to go make you breakfast. And he comes out and he makes some pancakes or something. And and he's asked for a sign and the the angel takes his staff and points it at the rock that the uh, pancakes are on and it torches right there and then the angel vanishes. Right, And so um, Gideon gets all excited and he goes and he builds an altar to the Lord and then the Lord speaks to him again and says, tear down your dad's altar. And uh, dad had an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole. Uh, these are uh, pagan uh, things. And, he, uh, and so Gideon takes his dad's bull and ties the, the altar to it, uh, rips down the altar and takes his other bull and puts it on the new altar and sacrifices it uh, to the Lord. And of course, the town people get furious about this. What, what is he doing? Baal's going to get 
upset. And, of course, there is no bail. And Gideon's father, Joash, defends his son. He doesn't say, son, what have you done to my altar? I spent weeks on that. He, doesn't, he just said, what he says is, let Baal contend. That's probably not in your, I don't think it's in your bulletin. Uh, let Baal contend for himself. And he protects his son. So Gideon was renamed Jerub, Jerubbaal. Jerub, I don't think it's Jerubbaal. It's Jerubbaal. Which means, let Baal contend with him. And, of course, nothing happens to to uh, Gideon because there is no Baal. It's a false god. And verse 34 in chapter 6 says, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And so he, what happens is he begins to gather people around him from all the different tribes of Israel who have been oppressed and they're kind of getting excited. And yet then, verse 36, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you've said. So Gideon has not gotten over his self-doubt yet. Gideon has an extraordinary, uh, or at least let's say notable, lack of faith. He is not yet convinced. Even though uh, he got excited, uh, he's taken down the the altar, he, uh, he's seen the, the angel of the Lord who vanished in front of him. All of this, that hasn't been enough. And, and so he says, I need to put out, I'm going to put out this fleece and you make it wet, but no, nothing on, on no, no wet on the ground. And God does it. And then Gideon says, well, don't let your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Now let the fleece be dry. Let it be dry on the fleece only and all on the ground let there be dew. And God did it. There is, there is no divine like eye rolling. Oh my gosh. Get in. Now most see this as a lack of faith. Right now, Keller, Tim Keller, notes that that he says that he the Gideon is actually testing God himself. God, he's looking to see if God's power is actually greater than the uh, Midianite gods, because if he can withhold the dew or put it in the places that he wants, then he's stronger than the little gods who would just make the dew happen and water the fields. Right, so um, so. That, he's the only one I can find who said that. Everybody else says, can you believe the lack of faith that Gideon has and his audacity to question this? And of course, most of them say, well, yes, we can believe it because we can see it in our own lives. Right? But, nevertheless, even if it's true that, that, that um, Gideon is wisely testing God to see if he is, has the power over the, the Amorite gods, Midianite gods, the fact that he asked twice is at least on some level audacious, right? It may be understandable given the level of oppression that Israel has, uh, has encountered and has suffered for the last seven years. But either way, the patience that God shows with Gideon must be a comfort to us. When we doubt, uh, we, can, we can look at times like this and say that the Lord is not looking for um, 
perfection. Now, I say a lot of times the Lord is looking for perfection, and that's why we need Jesus. And I think that's all true at the same time. Because of Jesus, and because uh, all of the, uh, our sin has been paid for, God is perpetually patient with us. His property is always to have mercy. Uh, he is uh, the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we see over and over again throughout the Old Testament glimpses and glimmers of this gracious God. Uh, so, so again, I just, I've said it many times, I'll say it many times again, I'll say it tonight. Uh, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. We, people say, oh, you know, the Old Testament God is a God of wrath and the New Testament is a God of love. We see over and over again God saying, I want to love you. And we see particular instances here. This Gideon is clothed with the Spirit of God. And he is patient. God is very patient with him. Uh, and then, without any divine eye rolling over the audacious lack of faith and once again, the delay. I mean, he had to wait a whole day, right, to, to get the fleece dried out and overnight and all of that again. Then puts God takes and now and puts the burden of victory over the Midianites entirely on his own shoulders. Like he makes it impossible for Gideon to have any claim on what's about to happen, right? So, Gideon's 300 men. I think this, this is a funny story. Uh, I, I really think it's a, a very interesting and just funny thing that God does. Uh, then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him. So, so what? He, remember, he's he's gathered like twenty-two thousand people from all the different tribes. He blew his trumpet. All they've all come out of the woodwork to try because they're gonna. We see the spirit of the Lord is upon this one God, the least of the least. We don't care. He's gonna lead us in victory. If we die, it's not going to be worse than what we've already been suffering. So they're coming around. They rose up with him as one, and, 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 um, and they, they were there with him, and they rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harak, a little south of, southwest of, of uh, Gal- the Sea of Galilee. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Said no one ever, right? I mean, that just, you, know, you got too many people in your army, is what God says. Uh, There's too many, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Now remember, they were, I mean, 22,000 people, they were still vastly outnumbered. So who here is scared? <laughs> 12,000 hands go up, right? And he said, fine, go home. Well, I'm not going to make you do something that you don't want to. Then 20, um, then 22 of, oh no, it was 32,000 people. 22,000 people left, 10,000 remain. And the Lord said to Gideon, ah, the people are still too many. Take them, down, take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, uh, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, <coughs> Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water like civilized people. And the Lord said to Gideon, 
with the 300 men who laughed like dogs, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others uh, go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and they sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300. God took the lappers. I just think that's hilarious. What kind of general says, I'm going to, the way I'm going to pick my army is I'm going to hit people and come down to water. And, I mean, that's just the silliest thing. He, he knows, he's taking the lappers, led by the D student, and uh, in the midst of this age that was uh, cyclical and repeated in his insistence on turning, uh, turning away from the Lord, God makes the odds of victory totally impossible, laughable, preposterous. Right? There is, what well, I mean, you, what's crazy is the 300 stayed. I mean, can you imagine? We're, all right, there's 300. We're going to go take the, the, we're the lappers. The army, army of Midian was undefeated. Out, they outnumbered the sand of the sea, uh, is what, I mean, obviously, it's a metaphor. They don't really, but I mean, it is just, they are a huge, vast army, and they had the lappers. I just think that is just beautiful uh, in its irony. So then, again, what's neat is that God gives Gideon this final grace before even the victory, this final um, gift. He, I, and, you know, at this point, he could have said, all right, Gideon, go. I've, I've given you everything you need. You've got the faith that you got. I'm with you. And if I'm not with you, you're in big trouble. You know, right? So, but he gives us this really um, unique thing. The same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, presumably one of the lappers, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So then he went down with Pura, because he was afraid still, after all of this, Pura, his servant, uh, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. They sneak up, you know, to hear the Midianites. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. (laughs) When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. That is tough bread, isn't it? (laughs) Overcooked, a little kind of hard. And his comrade said, Well, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. I mean, isn't that the weirdest thing? So what Gideon finds out is that Midian already believes uh, what Gideon has... It's hard to keep those straight, isn't it? Uh, that Gideon has found it so hard to believe himself. That Midian is also afraid because they know, and even though they're not the people of the Lord, they, they have heard the stories themselves. And if the Lord is going to fight the battle, they are in big trouble. I don't think there has anything, there's any specific um, significance to the barley bread except that it was just common and small. Just common. Everybody had barley, that's what they ate, barley bread, and it's just small. What a strange dream. 
if, if barley bread tumbles into the camp and rolls up against a tent, it lays flat. Obviously, but what, what the guy knew, if you ever had a, a dream and there's just, you, just, you kind of, even though it looks weird and you don't understand it, you do understand it, you know what it means in the dream. I, I often have dreams where in the dream I have a memory. Have you, do you ever remember things within your dream? I think that's so weird. And then I wake up and think about it. I've never had that thought before. Anyway, that's, I'm getting off track. But so, um, so this is surprise. It is small and common and yet surprisingly strong, right? Um, again, incredible grace that God has given Gideon, his chosen servant, uh, further affirmation. So as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. Of course he did. Thanks be to God. And he returned to the camp of Israel, all 300 of them, and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divide, now he divides them. So that means even further, divides the 300 men into three companies, puts trumpets into the hands of all of them, empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he says, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So they, big, huge camp of the Midianites, three companies of 100 people of the Israelites. They go on sort of in a triangle on either side of them. And Gideon and the 100 men who were with him came to the outskirts uh, at the camp, beginning of the middle watch, the middle of the night. They just set their watch. They blew the trumpets, smashed the jars. They're just making a racket. The three companies blew the trumpets and broke their jars. They're just smashing things. They left. Uh, they held in their left hands the torches, in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! And every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran, and they cried out and fled. And when they blew the three hundred trumpets, here it is, the Lord set every man's sword, this is every Midianite man, Every man soared against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerarah and as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabak. You've probably been there uh, on vacation. But um, so, was, so it, the Lord throws the army into a panic and they defeat each other. They self-attacked. This is not the only place in Scripture we see this. Um, I mean, I'll tell you, I have a, a very, I have a friend who is, um, he's a priest, and he is I, sort of, I call, I mean, I think of him like Elijah. He, he, he just deals in the Spirit in, in a lot of in strange and, and I think very unique ways. And he was, uh, uh, he, he was almost in the inner circle of Grateful Dead followers. He was so into drugs and so into, all he did was follow the Grateful Dead around. <clears throat> and he was at a concert and he looked down and he said the whole thing started to turn. And it was like this giant flush, this huge toilet bowl, just, it was, it was, and I knew, couldn't didn't understand it, but he knew what it was, uh, that it was, it was the judgment of God over this 
state. But I figured it was just the LSD. <laughs> so, um, so he went into the, uh, to, into, I don't know what, what, where they were, this sort of inner circle. And, you know, they, the deadheads, I mean, they get this, had this reputation for, for being all peace and love or whatever. He, it was nasty. I mean, it was awful, just the, just the, uh, the darkness. And um, anyway, basically, I, to make a long story short, and I don't remember all the details of it, but the Lord grabs him out of that, spoke to him, turned him around, and came back, and he said, this is the craziest trip I've ever been on, but if it's you, Lord, you're going to have to get me out of here, because people started coming after him. Because anyway, so he has these two people that finally corner him against the car, and he calls out for the Lord, and and the two guys start fighting each other. Just got into this awful fight. And he said, when he tells the story, he's like, and it was just like that time in Gideon, uh, with Gideon's that battle. So I don't know if that um, makes any sense to you. But it's, it is uh, not unique in Scripture. And it's, it was a, a very unique uh, thing there. Israel doesn't lift their sword. They just blow their uh, trumpets. They smash their jars. They yell. And God wins. And they are released from the oppression uh, of Midian. Now, there's more to Gideon's story, and I hope you go and take uh, a look at it. But I wonder, uh, and it's not, you know, it doesn't end particularly well. Um, and it ends after Gideon dies and the people whore after the idols of Midian, uh, is what it says. Then, um, let's see, I think that is the exact... Soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. It's a really sad story. But um, obviously, as we have seen in Judges and we saw in Joshua, God is the one who's the, the hero in this. Not, um, but he uses this uh, unlikely uh, servant, uh, Gideon. Uh, what, what, can we, what can we learn from this very strange story? Give me another example. Jesus. Moses. Moses. Yeah. Samuel. Samuel. David, who was the seventh son and, and you know, the shepherd boy. Um, and Jesus, right? The un- unlikely, born to... You know, I always think that when, when, when it says in Scripture that uh, the, the crowds began to question uh, Jesus, said, isn't this the son of Joseph and Mary? That what they mean is, isn't this the one they had out of wedlock? You know, like it's just, he, I mean, he just, he would have carried that and fought that all his life. So, yeah, and then of course, well, I, I don't, I've got one final thing. I don't want to get there too much, but um, yeah, you're right. Always, it seems. We can go through the whole. Yes, thanks be to God. And it also, you know, it warns me anyway. I mean, I'm, I live in a, uh, my profession anyway is filled with um, people who are, uh, you know, there's some there's superstars, and, and the way you get to be superstars by getting a bigger church and by you know having you know, p- publications and all this stuff, and it's, there's a real temptation to sort of hunger after that rather than say if I'm going to write anything, I need to write it in order to serve the Lord rather than to build my platform or something like that. So there's just always it doesn't matter what profession or who you are, human nature wants to exalt itself, and um, and so yeah, it says the, the the one the Lord can use is the one who's 
who's not exalting himself. Let it be unto me. And as it happens, uh, this week in the rector's forum, this week and next week, two weeks, I'll, uh, we'll spend talking about the Magnificat. That's what we're going to do. So, the rector's forum. What else can we learn from this? Email. We just see over and over again in the story that God is, is gracious. And yet, it's to what end? I mean, God is not trying desperately to win the people of Israel back to faithfulness. I mean, you, you, in one sense, I mean, he, wants, he, he does fight on their behalf because they're chosen, but he doesn't, you know, it's not like the Lord actually ends up suffering defeat. It's just over and over again we see human nature rebelling against God. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's why he swears by himself. This is not a uh, what we have in here. We do not have in this story a roadmap for obedience, right? I mean, we would not say we want to prescribe such continued fearfulness uh, about obeying the Lord. Uh, nevertheless, it highlights several things about the character of uh, human nature and the character of the Lord. What What do we see about human nature uh, in in this story? Yes. You know, they slight cyclical. Mm-hmm. They'll be really good for a while and then uh, yeah. and they'll go back to bed. Uh-huh. That's right. So their their faith is not sustained. Uh, they're always doing their uh, they're rebellious. Very often they don't think you're good enough. Yeah, they doubt themselves. There's which is another way of saying they're self centered, right? I mean there's not that they're thinking less of themselves. They, I mean, they're not thinking of themselves less. They're thinking of themselves a lot. They just think less, they think lowly of themselves. Yeah. Yes, God continues his, his call to them over and over despite their faithlessness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, not because he's needy. Uh, Katie said, he said, um, he always says, please love me, but it's please love me for your good, right? Um, so we're talking, I, the question was, what about human nature? Uh, I'll just add, throw idolatrous uh, into the mix there. But what well, you've, thankfully, in one sense, started talking about the things we can learn about the Lord and His character. He's patient. He's, uh, he wants us to love Him for His own, for his own sake. What else can we learn about the Lord? Right. His victory comes in a way that you would never draw it up. Right? You go to West Point, you're not learning how to hit his pots. You know, right? That's, 
You know, just this victory comes the most unexpected way. And where does that point us straight to? To Jesus. That's always the right answer. Uh, it points to Jesus, to the cross, because His victory came in the most unexpected way. You would never draw up salvation like that. His greatest victory comes in humiliating defeat. That the God Almighty is hung naked on a cross, beaten. That is a great victory. And so we see the character of God, that He is always sovereign, always in control, and that He actually, in a sense, glories in suffering and defeat, in lowliness, maybe is a better way to say that, in this situation. And, and it points us ahead to Christ. Yes, He's compassionate. Because He'll let people bargain with it. Mm-hmm. You know, through the fleeces or through, well, what if I find a hundred branches? Right, right. Ten. Yes. Ten. How about ten? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think of the verse, if God is with you, who can be against you? Right. If God is for us, who can be against us? Right. Romans 8. Um, you you know, know, you know, go ahead. You don't need a, a, a tremendous army to do his work. To do what he wants. I mean, he told him, get too many. You don't need that many people. You don't mm-hmm. need that many. Mm-hmm. And reduce them almost down to, to a handful. And the lappers. They took the lappers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, interestingly, we have about um, not quite 300 on a Sunday uh, here. Think of what we could do. You lappers. Um, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, don't lap out of the challenge. Don't do that. What's that? Been called worse. Been called worse, yeah. Being called worse. I would have left. I just said I'm going with those other twenty-two thousand. I, I mean, I are you kidding me? Yeah, I have changed my mind. We see that God is present despite the appearance of very negative circumstances, don't we? And in fact, it's shown to be a mercy. So we can look, I think, to our own lives. Uh, we, don't, we don't want to allegorize this, but we can look to our own lives and, and see uh, that uh, where the character of God is shown to be sovereign in negative circumstances, where He is patient and gracious, and He is for us. And we have only to look uh, at the cross to know uh, that His ultimate victory comes in defeat, and that um, that through death uh, comes life in the Christian life. And so uh, when things are going wrong, uh, when we are doubtful and fearful that God is always uh, in control. Just close with a, um, a, a song that I, and I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'm just going to reference it, uh, that um, is by David Wilcox. And David Wilcox sort of a folksy uh, guitar player. And uh, he says, if um, there's, he talks about this, the life as a story. He's really ultimately referring to Christ and his cross. He says, there's, um, the way that you would write a play is to, you, would, you would make sure that there is tension and it looks like evil's going to win. And when there's evil all around us uh, and the dark is here to stay, um, I can't, how does he say, pull back the curtain and see that love wrote the play or something like that. So, 
the, the, sovereign, the sovereignty of God is, is, um, is not to be questioned like, like it was at, at, by Gideon, where he said, how can, how can you say the Lord is with us? I mean, all these bad things are happening. And it was actually because of those things that the Lord was uh, shown victory. So, I hope that's an encouragement to you. And I hope that you will come back next week and bring your friends because it is going to be crazy when we look at Sam. Sam. Yeah, last Okay. Genesis chapter 19. Okay, lots. First, you have to listen to a word I've said. You've been looking for me. <laughs> I found this in less than 30 seconds. All right, get it. Because this story is the weirdest in the world. But, oh, well, Samson's fun. This is just weird. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn, the oldest daughter, bore a son and told his name Moab. And he was the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name something I can't pronounce. He is the father of the Amorites to this very day. So the Moabites and the Amorites We thank you for your mercy and your grace uh, that you are sovereign over our lives, that you are patient, abounding in steadfast love. Uh, you are for us. And we see, despite our own nature and our fear and our doubt, uh, that the victory belongs to you. And we see that in the cross and in the resurrection. And we thank you for that, Lord. And thank you that we stand in that legacy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.